Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Hi, welcome to Mindspace. Uh, this is Jeff Boucher, and I'm here with Maya St. Clair. And today our guest is Don Hahn, uh, whose well-known name to fans of Disney animation. His career with Disney goes all the way back to Pete's Dragon uh, and Fox and the Hound before that. Uh, some of the other things that he worked on, The Black Cauldron, The Great Mouse Detective, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the great 1988 classic. But uh, he's probably best known for his work with Beauty and the Beast, the first animated film ever nominated for the Best Picture Oscar, uh, and also his work on The Lion King. Um, he's directed people like Steve Martin, James Earl Jones, Quincy Jones, and Angela Lansbury on, state, on screen, excuse me. And uh, he is a fascinating guy to talk to, and, and uh, today we're gonna chat him up about all things animation, both in the past, Disney's history, and also a little bit about maybe the future animation and where it might be going. So uh, sit back and enjoy the conversation. And here's our chat with Don Hahn. Uh, well, Don, thank you for coming on the show. It's very nice to see you and welcome to uh, Mindspace. It's, it's, uh, it's a treat to have you. Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Um, your career is so interesting. And, and uh, uh, one of the things that we've seen during your career is just the, ch the changing view of animation and, and what its scale can be uh, and what its nature can be even uh, at this point. Um, it must be a lot to take in. I mean, when you, when you look over your career and, and the places you've been and uh, think about the, 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 the way that animation has changed, it, it must be quite a, a long view for you. Yeah, yeah, it's a good way to say it. I, you know, you never think of that when you're getting into it. You're just happy to have a budge. And I was a music major in college, so I wasn't really focused on even filmmaking. But I fell in love with it really quickly. And, and um, I was lucky because I, I started at the same time as like Tim Burton and, and Brad Bird and Glenn Keane and all those guys. Yeah. And um, the old, the, the nine old men, the old guys that worked with Walt Disney were still there. So that became kind of a university extension class. You know, you could just, you, and they were generous. You could go up and, and you know, ask them what they were doing and uh, they would tell you. So that was pretty great, but I don't think anybody expected animation would get to where it is and how lucrative it is and how much it's permeated into kind of every corner of the film business. You know, you go look at a Marvel film and it's basically an animated film. Um, and I love that, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting and, and, um, daunting and all those things so it has yeah. been an explosion kind of of um technology and creativity um in animation lately yeah and you know tell me uh, if you could I, that's just a fascinating notion of uh you know 
you at that age walking into an environment like that and and just yeah. uh what what that must be like you know i i i was a young person uh walking into the la times newsroom when i was 21 and ended up staying mm. there for 21 years and wow. it was a fascinating resource just to be around these people you I could bet. throw a throw a rock and hit like a Pulitzer Prize winner or, or a fascinating war correspondent or, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, someone, an editor, which is actually who you would want to hit with the rock. If you were going to throw it, I mean, that's the, that's where you would. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> but for you, uh, I, I'm sure it was just like that environment was for me. It, it, it was just a, a treasured experience just to be in the room, but, and then just vital lessons left and right. Some that you probably don't even know you're getting at the time. Yeah, it's really true. And I think with every year that passes, I value that time even more because it, at the time, I'm not sure you're able to comprehend it or take it all in. You're just glad to be there. And and Disney at the time was, this was in the mid seventies, was kind of a um, time warp. It was it was trapped a little bit in the sixties because Walt died in the 1966. Yeah. yeah. And um, so it was a, a land of kind of rotary dial phones and uh, carbon paper and, uh, linoleum and things that were kind of from that era and it's not that the people didn't move on I mean they were really wanting to keep um, animation alive but um, you know they were at the end of their careers yeah. and thankfully a few of them um, Ron Miller who was the head of the studio Wooly Reitherman who was uh, produced and directed Jungle Book and Dalmatians and all the movies I grew up on yeah. uh, wanted to keep the activity going and so they recruited um, from all over the place, from, from there, there were no animation schools except for CalArts um, and maybe Sh um, uh, you know, shared it up in Canada. Wow. So they, they recruited, they went on recruiting trips and really um, spent some time trying to bring people in. But it was, um, it was amazing. You know, it, you really felt the history of old Hollywood there. Uh, the Disney studio itself is, was built in 1939 with the profits from Snow White. So it, it has kind of a, uh, streamlined modern architecture style and so it's like being on a, on a ship almost um, and uh, you know it's just hard to describe in a few words but uh, any you could do anything on that lot because it had it generated its own power it had its own water it had its own lumber mill its own uh, machine shop where they built the you know they built the trains for Disneyland they, yeah. they built the Mark Twain at Disneyland on that lot in Burbank so it was much more than a film studio uh, they, you know, they did Fantasia there. They did so many things um, that it was just uh, reeking with history. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, it, it's actually taken over a lot of my life in, in, in the work I'm doing now because I get more and more interested in, in, um, in it as time goes on and in the people I got to work with. Um, so yeah, it was a special time. And, it, and as you said, it was like walking into the, you know, the Times newsroom or the New Yorker or something like that, where you just feel like, the I, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You feel like I'm here at this really special time. And, um, and and I think the other thing, too, is the colleagues that, you know, to be able to start with all those people. I have dozens of friends now that we're at the, you know, kind of the apex of our careers. Um, and, and to know that we all kind of started there together, we were all, we know that we were lucky to be mm -hmm. there, you know, at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, that... Uh, after Walt's death uh, in 66, uh, there was a, a time where it, it, it uh, you know, the rhythms of the, uh, the company certainly changed and the rhythms of the, that creative hub changed and, and but also the marketplace and the country and the way that movies were, yeah. you know, reaching their audience was even starting to change. Um, yeah. 
uh, and then, you know, in the 80s, uh, things turned and righted themselves in, in, in a dramatic way. And, 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 and with you as a big part of that, um, that, that shift, uh, was there ever a time that people didn't feel that it was coming? I mean, did, was it an optimistic place or, or did, when you got there, did you also sense like, was there, uh, you know, maybe any undercurrents of, of, you know, uh, missing Walt so much that people were, weren't sure if the, uh, the future was as bright as the past? Uh, I think it was the latter. I think people um, did not go to see Disney animated films. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe did not go see Disney films at all, yeah. um, because there was a sense that they were kid films and they really weren't for the general audience. And I think that was kind of the revolution of the '80s when Michael Eisner uh, and Frank Wells came into the company. That uh, they really brought with them kind of a general Hollywood um, aesthetic, and the film started to be marketed and and made in more of a general audience way. And it's not like anybody was trying to make kid films. I mean, we were just making movies. Uh, but back before that time, before Eisner and Wells came in, there was a feeling like, God, I wish we were making, um, you know, more interesting movies. We were, the studio passed on Star Wars. Um, they, they picked up Splash, the Ron Howard movie, which did really well with Tom Hanks and everything else. That was kind of a turning corner. And they started Touchstone Pictures. But it, it was not a, a, a full leap into mainstream filmmaking so Disney was still a small studio still backwater almost which is hard to imagine because now it's this, this giant behemoth um, but it was really one of the smaller of all the um, of all the animation studios uh, of all the movie studios so yeah it was a really interesting time I, there was a time when animation may have gotten thrown out you know I think there was a feeling when Eisner and Wells came in that uh, it might have gotten tossed out but Roy Disney at the time Roy E. Disney, which is kind of the junior Roy Disney, yeah. kind of threw his body on the tracks and said, you know, over my dead body and started working with us. And, um, and then we had the confidence to say, listen, this is our chance. This is our generation's chance to do something and, and at least try. And that's when we started making movies like Great Mouse Detective and Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and those films. Yeah. And, and uh, it must have been an amazing thing. I mean, obviously, Disney. Uh, Part of its institutional uh, uh, fabric is is success. You know, like uh, for you know from Snow White on, really, there's so many successes. Yeah. But that must have been an especially uh, uh, valued one, just because things had gone down. Um, yeah. So when things turned around, it must have been a lot of fun energy, is what I'm saying. Uh, it really was. I mean, I w I worked on movies like The Black Cauldron and. Um, you know, that things that were not that successful. And it's not because anybody wanted to make a bad movie. I mean, there was a lot of good work in it, but the story wasn't adding up. And um, it just, the chemistry wasn't there in the studio. And I think part of it was fear. Uh, I think you have to have a healthy amount of fear and hunger uh, in your gut to start to do good work. Mm. Um, and this, we were too comfortable before that. You know, you could uh, take long lunches and you could... Um, come in a little bit late and it's not that we didn't care because we cared but I think there was a fear that animation would go away mm. and um, and I think that that motivates a lot um, so it helped us kind of jump in and, and there was also money and support and there was great marketing behind it and um, and that helped turn the corner too but I think that that kind of uh, youthful hunger and fear was really valuable at the time because um, yeah. it could have gone away which would have right? been sad. Yeah. 
it just doesn't yeah it forces you to um you know work 80 hour weeks and do all the things you have to do because in, in any creative endeavor as and you know as well as i do is that you know talent's something but the work is the kind of hidden secret that nobody wants to talk about and so everybody worked hard and put in the hours to learn the craft and figure out what we were doing from story to color to music to everything else and that's really what the key was yeah and for you um well which which would have been the project that you know uh, kind of when you walked through the door that uh was the, the one that you had been working on um peach dragon okay peach dragon yeah that was uh, the rest of the first rescuers movie was just finishing but i the first one i worked on was peach dragon okay. uh, and then fox and the hound and black cauldron and then great mouse detective yeah. um and then after Great Mouse, I went to uh, London and worked on Roger Rabbit. And that was really kind of the turning point of it all because that was a film that came from the Eisner Katzenberg kind of era. Bob Zemeckis, the director of Roger Rabbit, sure. uh, loved that story and had just come off of Back to the Future and really wanted to do it. And so that was uh, a masterclass for me because Bob's an amazing guy and really an amazing director and generous um, and you know, I was just a kid from Bellflower. And so to be able to go do that and live in London for a couple of years, work with Richard Williams, the animation director, was a total life-changing, eye-opening experience because you're, you know, you're still working 80 hours and trying to get it done. But I had to build a studio. There was no studio. And so we I recruited from around um, Europe and we brought in great animators from France and Italy and England and everywhere we could, and we hired guys out of art school that now are like directors and the heads of the industry and things. But um, animation is great that way. It's, you know, you, you, can, you can pull people into it and if they have some basic skills, they can really learn it and do amazing work. So that was an amazing movie just on a number of levels, just because of the youth of the, of the crew that made it and the impossibility of the technique that made it and, yeah. um, and the success of it. It reminded everybody how much they loved animation and it really became a, a huge, huge hit. Yeah, and, and a breath of fresh air. Like it, 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 it was so, yeah. um, so different and fun. It was really fun, and, mm -hmm. and you know the peril was intact despite the fun, which makes it, uh, you know, that's that's not always an easy trick to pull off. You know. Yeah, and and it was irreverent. You know, it was not. It was actually um, a Touchstone movie, and, and now we we see it as a very Disney movie. But movies like that and Nightmare Before Christmas that were kind of edgy were released as touchstone movies just so that the, the core Disney audience wasn't alienated. Now the Disney audience has grown into something slightly different, but it was a really conservative group back then. It is a fascinating thing too, because of the sort of the pop culture collage of it. You know, I mean, you know, you had, yeah. I remember all my favorite people were in it. There's Droopy and Frank Sinatra. Wow, I, you know, <laughs> like I didn't expect them to be in the yeah. same film ever. Uh, we used to, and, we got to the end of the movie and we needed all these characters to come into the Acme warehouse, if you remember at the conclusion of the movie. And I used to call up Warner Brothers and I said, you know, I would say, you know, we need uh, four more of your characters. So can we have Foghorn, Lakehorn and Yosemite Sam? And they'd go, yeah, sure. We're not using them. Nobody <laughs> was. They were, they were kind of dead characters. Nobody was making features or movies with them as they are now. You know, there's a Tom and Jerry movie. But back then you could call up and get Tom and Jerry because it was sitting on a shelf. So yeah. it was also a movie of its time. You know, you could really say, hey, we want to put Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse together in a scene. And there was some negotiation. You know, we had to put yeah. Bugs in in the same amount of time as Mickey. But in general, people were really, you know, um, really open to it. Max Flesher, who owned Betty Boop and Coco the Clown and all those characters. Sure. His son, Richard Flesher, was 
right. you know, my contact, I would call him up and say, hey, can we have Coco? And he'll say, yeah, sure, have Coco. So it was just an unusual time because of that. And, uh, but it did open the gates, I think, and it made people just love those characters. Yeah, and it's a, it is a very warm film too. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I think know. so. Well, that's Bob. You know, the and, and what's interesting about uh, Bob Zemeckis is, is uh, his pursuit of technology uh, is almost as uh, drives him maybe even more in some ways than his uh, impulses as a storyteller. I mean, if you look at the way he's, you know, with with uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but then other things like Polar Express and his uh, uh, different animation uh, approaches, Castaway in, in the way that that was filmed. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Did you, uh, that, that would be, uh, that was a, a not a common trait in his generation, perhaps. Uh, I mean, certainly Spielberg and Lucas, but uh, it became more and more common for people to kind of mix the tech with the art uh, as their mm -hmm. their impulses. Uh, you must have seen that happening around you. Yeah, absolutely. He he was fearless when it came to that. It was just not unlike Walt Disney, who was also fearless with combining tech and artistry and, and understanding the technology pushed the artistry and vice versa. And so, um, and it's funny because there's a lot of uh, Bob Zemeckis and Roger Rabbit in movies like Beauty and the Beast mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, like the dancing scene in the ballroom where the camera's moving around. Uh -huh. That was kind of a first at, at, in its time. And that's because a lot of us worked on Roger Rabbit and we weren't afraid of animating with moving perspective and, and flying camera moves. And so a lot of the echoes of Roger kind of came into those next movies because of the skill set of the, of the characters. And it was also the time that was kind of the explosion of computer graphics. So we, like when we were rendering the, the uh, ballroom for Beauty and the Beast, we, we didn't know if we could render in time to get it done. And so we would set up these massive render farms on the weekends for anybody's computer that wasn't being used. And we'd come in on Monday and like two frames had been rendered. Um, so, it, you know, now you could do it on your cell phone. Um, so it was just those really early days of um, Apple computer and uh, Google and all those things. And, you know, we didn't have any computers on Roger. I, I had one little kind of Commodore 64 or something like that. And uh, by the time we got into um, Mermaid, especially uh, Beauty and the Beast, Rescuers Down Under, those were computer generated colors in those movies. The animation was done by hand, but the, the color and post was done um, in kind of a paint program called CAPS. So it was a revolution at the time. And that was also another thing that made the, the art form expand. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's like, it, that reminds me of the, uh, the fact that uh, NASA, all the computer power that put man on the moon in 1969 uh, would have fit on an, any iPod. Uh, that you yeah. was and this sort of boggling, uh, mind boggling, but at the same time, uh, oddly reassuring too. Uh, that, that, yeah. That, uh, that, uh, that uh, things have changed that quickly, but also that things, uh, you know, aren't entirely existing in the digital world, that there, there can be innovation and, and ingenuity yeah. uh, beyond well, the hard drive. It's still human beings sitting at the keyboard or, you know, with the stylus doing the work. So it's the computer's kind of a fancy pencil and a fancy tool to get it all done, but it still has to be driven by somebody. I suppose someday we'll come to the point where AI can create all these movies, but um, that'll be a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's just leave them as agents as they are now. It's just safer. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so true. You know, the, the, there's animation. It's fascinating to me because, you know, first, uh, 
uh, Disney and, and, and animation people in general had to prove that it was an art to Hollywood and that it was worthwhile. And then they had to, um, then they had to prove that digital was also an art and that, you know, suddenly that everybody that didn't think that animation was an art in the establishment that was saying that, well, this stuff's not art. They didn't draw it like these guys did. So now the standards changed and the, the, uh, the, the threshold has changed. Uh, and now we see this, this to me, frankly, uh, kind of really unusual uh, chapter where we have animation movies that are called photorealistic when they're, I mean, it's, it's yeah. in some cases entirely animated. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's, it's a kind of a, a funhouse mirror in some ways. <laughs> it is because the tool is so sophisticated. Um, you know, when you look at the, at the new Lion King remake, it is very photoreal and astonishing in many ways because of that. Um, and so it, it's a different movie because of that, because the expressions on the faces and things are quite different. Um, it's no less of a movie and it was incredibly successful, but it's just, it becomes a different kind of thing. And um, so, yeah, the, the growth of, of the technology is uh, mind boggling. It really, really is. Even if you look at a Pixar movie like Soul, um, there's so much going on behind the screen to, to put something like that up on the screen. But the paradox of animation always is that you spend all this time and money and technology on it. And the, the main goal is to make the audience not know that and make the audience forget that. So when they're watching it, they can suspend their disbelief and just enjoy the story. Right. And that's what Soul does. That's what the best movies do. Um, and that's what's so odd about it. Nobody really knows what goes on behind the screen. And you want that. That's, you know, that's always been the case with movies or I suppose even uh, paintings and books and dance and all that stuff. You don't see the hard work. Yeah. Well, I remember seeing, um, seeing Beauty and the Beast in the theaters when it came out. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the scene with the, uh, the, the camera point of view uh, spinning in the, in the dance, uh, in the dance yeah. hall. Um, and I, re I remember that scene very distinctly and, and um, that accomplished something uh, that kind of speaks to what you're describing is uh, the story had me so fully immersed that I kind of set aside that I was watching animation in, in a very enthralling way uh, until that scene to, and then I, I was still in the world but I was open to the spectacle of what the camera was doing and, and, yeah. and kind of lean back, you know, I've been leaning forward a little bit and then I was leaning back mm -hmm. for a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. And both those things um, uh, really speak to what a, you know, uh, virtuoso achievement that film is. I mean, it's really an extraordinary yeah. film. Well, thank you. Uh, we had an amazing crew and it's, we had an amazing story crew. If you looked at the people that were on that crew, Roger Allers, who went on to direct, um, Lion King and uh, sure. Kelly Asbury and Brenda Chapman, who directed Brave, and you know, everybody now is a director, uh, you know. And so the story <laughs> crew was really good, and in, and story is really the the most challenging part, because um, so many people and so many studios can deliver the technology and the artistry of it, and fall short with story or um, not challenge themselves with the story. And it's the same with writing and everything else. You have to be really self critical to get the story to work. And, um, and we became really good at that, um, you know, by doing a lot of study and by, um, you know, pushing ourselves and Pixar picked that up and Pixar became really good at it and still are. Mm -hmm. So um, that was the main thing that was really unique. We really worked hard on story um, along with everything else. But as you said, we really wanted to sweep the audience away in these old fairy tales. 
there weren't that many old fairy tales left. There was Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and, and Rumpelstiltskin. And who wants to do Rumpelstiltskin? You know, it was like a tiny movie. So we really had these big last of the red hot fairy tales and we didn't want to shortchange them. And we changed them a lot. I mean, the original Beauty and the Beast story is really different from what we put on the screen. But Walt Disney did the same thing. And that kind of gave us the courage to say, well, he threw out Pinocchio and he threw out, you know, Bambi and everything else and made his own version of Jungle Book. And, and um, that was very brave for him. Um, but in the end, you figure out, well, people haven't really read Jungle Book cover to cover. No. So I'm going to have, you know, Phil Harris play this big blue bear. And, you know, it, it, it's okay. You know, it's okay. It, and that's what storytelling is. Storytelling is a telling stories that are relevant to your own generation. And that's why people always say, well, what do you think about the remakes of all these movies like Lion King and Beating the Beast in live action? And I, I think it's great because it's been 20 or 30 years. And, and uh, stories are meant to be told. They're not meant to sit on the shelf. They were told every valley had its own version of Beauty and the Beast, you know, every, and, and all those things uh, are meant to go on. They're not meant to be frozen on a shelf somewhere. Yeah, no, very well said. And, and it's almost like you can't imagine Olivia being distressed that there's a new Hamlet production. Uh, like, uh, yeah. uh, it's, it's seasonal. Yeah. It's, 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 it's not, a, um, are we doing the same material? It's, what are we doing to the material? Like, what is, what's the new iteration, the new? Totally, you know? totally right. Yeah. Um, the idea of what is authentic, uh, what counts and what, what is value has really been interesting to watch, uh, you know, with, uh, the, the, the arc of Pixar, you know, you think back to like when, uh, Toy Story came out and all the people, um, or all the debate about, uh, its intrinsic value or what the, what it achieved or what it represented as an accomplishment. And now you go back and revisit that stuff, and it's really kind of startling how harsh yeah. people were on it, and and how slow people were on the uptake that uh, this was just a different type of art. Um, yeah, tell me a little bit about that from from your point of view. You know, from, well, you know, we we used to have alliances with with toy companies. I think is probably the best way to tell it is we would go to them with um, Lion King or Beauty and the Beast, and they would make really hundreds of millions of dollars worth of toys that would sell. And yeah. when Toy Story came along with the word toy in the title, they didn't really want to be involved. They said, I'm not sure, there's no princess in it. Um, Mattel would not allow us to license Barbie for the film. Right. Um, there was such skepticism about it. And to Pixar's credit, they, you know, they plowed through it and made it and people started to open their eyes to the possibilities of computer graphics. And um, so there was a real reluctance to go for it. I mean, even Nightmare Before Christmas, which now is this perennial sacred object almost, yeah. was not a hit film when it came out. It, people did not go to see that movie. Um, but over the years, it's become kind of a classic. So um, sometimes time reveals um, things. Now it's almost the opposite work. It, for, for several years, computer graphics has been the fair-haired child of the animation business. And it's hard to get a hand-run film going but in the last few years, um, so there's probably four stop motion movies going on right now. There's probably three or four hand-drawn movies going on. So style, uh, the technique has become irrelevant and it's been more about storytelling. Um, computer graphics is good, it's amazing. It's, it's a modern marvel of technology, um, but there's a hunger now for, in a, in a funny way, for more hand-drawn, hand-created animation. I always think of it, and maybe this is too esoteric, but like the um, arts and crafts movement was a reaction to the machine age, you know, it's that yeah. kind of thing. It's like, 
I, I love computers. I will, I will always use them, but sometimes it's nice to see a hand sculpted piece or something yeah. that was done with a pencil. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a hunger for that now as well. And there's some great filmmakers like Wolf Walkers that came out this year and got nominated for an Academy Award is a hand-drawn movie and, uh, and beautifully so. So there's, there's, there's that, and, you know, of course, a lot of the Japanese movies um, from Miyazaki and Hosoda are uh, hand-drawn movies and, and gorgeous. Yeah. So that's exciting too, because it shows that you can, you can paint in oils, you can paint in watercolors, you can paint in chalk pastel, and it doesn't matter. It's about the, are you affecting human emotion with your art? And um, that's, that's an evolution that's been slow in coming in animation, but it's starting to show up. Now, one of the things that we have seen, I mean, Disney has uh, long been defined by being family entertainment uh, and, uh, and or in some cases, children's entertainment for some of the things, but mostly family entertainment. Um, and animation has so, been so closely associated in the United States with Disney uh, because of the, the success of the brand and, and the many ways that it, it reaches its audience. Um, so people are not accustomed traditionally to the idea of a rated R cartoon or animated film or, uh, you know, a, a more serious, uh, themed, uh, something that has, you know, maybe graphic content. Uh, this podcast is, is brought to you by heavy metal magazine. So, uh, obviously, uh, that brand has some history there, uh, in rated R and now we're seeing more and more animation that does go into kind of darker or, or deeper um, adult content, so to speak. Um, do you think that we'll see that become a, a sort of a, a, a surging river uh, in the years to come? Or do you think that um, even with Pixar's changing of the, the way that people think of animation uh, being sort of juvenile, uh, it's helped a great deal to change that. Do you think that it's still so locked in that the, the medium isn't really open to that. Uh, I don't know. You know, I think for in my lifetime in animation, people have, you know, people like Ralph Bakshi have tried to do R-rated animation, and it's interesting and successful and fun to look at, but it's never crossed over into a big audience. Um, yeah. And I think in general, uh, in, in, in the movie business, whether it's live action or animated, R-rated movies are a small, becoming smaller, because, um, you know, if you have a family of four and you want to go out to the movies, you're not going to go see an R-rated movie. You're, that's kind of a date night movie. And and so the movie audience has gotten smaller, especially after COVID. Now theatrical distribution has changed in immensely. And um, so I, I I do think that, that kind of an R-rated or more strictly adult rated um, in terms of violence or sexual content or whatever uh, is appropriate for animation. Totally so. I mean, it's, it's a graphic medium and, and animation is not unlike, um, you know, comics and, and uh, political cartoons and so many things that cover any topic you want to cover. And I've, we've brought in people like uh, Mike Mignola, who does the Hellboy comics, sure. came in and worked on Atlantis with us. So the artistry is there to do it. And I think it really just takes a filmmaker with a strong point of view and a great story to do it, whether that's a, a film noir detective story or a like Roger Rabbit was or a um, you know whatever it is is to really commit to that and then also commit to the artistry though and not just throw it away and I think if it's not 
a lot of times the R-rated animated movies are just there for the shock value. It's like, right. oh my God, it's a rabbit and he's got, not, he doesn't have any clothes on or, you know, whatever. Right. And uh, so it's, it's the idea that somebody has to come in with more than that. Right. And something that really, you know, punches you as a story. Uh, and then, yes, I think the sky's the limit. And, and you see that a lot in, uh, again, in Marvel movies and, and a lot of so-called live action movies that really are almost completely animated. Yeah. Um, they haven't got into our movie territory, but they're definitely into adult territory and, sure. you know, with violence and that kind of thing. And, you know, so you I think it's Sin inevitable. City, and, you know, for instance, yeah, it's yes, exactly. so exactly. close to animated that it's almost splitting hairs in a way. Exactly. And, and they're fun to watch and they're, they're uh, you know, they're exciting to watch. So, um, yeah, so it'll happen. Um, it, you know, it's just, it may never be the big uh, breakthrough kind of movies. But that holds true for R-rated movies in general, whether they're live or animated. They're not going to be the top of the box office usually. Yeah, I have a theory that uh, a huge uh, commercial success would be doing an animated remake of Pink Floyd: The Wall. You know, like with to well, really use technology. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Because some of those things are in the culture; they're in the collective consciousness of all of us. And um, they are kind of low hanging fruit for somebody to come along and and make that. But it has to be a filmmaker who wants to reinvent it and right. not just, you know, it's not a muse museum piece. It has to turn into something that's reinvented and, and repurposed for what animation can do now. Yeah, I think Christopher Nolan should do it. And I've talked to him about it, actually, because he's such a big fan of the original. He's a huge fan oh, of the really? original. And Man, he's a big he's fan brilliant. of uh, He is, he is. And he's a big fan of Alan Parker. I got to do uh -huh. a piece on Alan Parker once uh, that was really, really exciting for me. I went, I, I, I uh, visited an office here in LA and um, brought a stack of DVDs of his films um, and, you know, Midnight Express and, um, uh, you know, um, what, Mississippi Burning, The Commitments, uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall, and Vita, uh, you know, all these movies where he had uh, Birdie, where he had used music in a really interesting way. If you look, yeah. that's the common link between all those movies. I mean, whether it's an Irish singing group or, uh, you know, adaptation of Pink Floyd or, uh, you know, a musical about Evita, you know, all of them have, even Mississippi Burning uh, ends with a big gospel um, yeah. moment yeah. that kind of adds the, uh, the unifying um, spirit of the film. And, uh, we went through the, uh, in his office there and we queued up one scene in each film that, his, that he picked to show how music can be used in a scene. And it was just mm. fascinating. It was like three hours, the best three, one of the best three hours uh, you can imagine as far as sitting down with someone and talking about movies. Oh, I'm jealous, that's fantastic. Yeah, and, um, and what came across was the, just, you know, no surprise to anyone, I suppose, but it's always good to talk about, it's just how, powerful music is and essential music is to cinema as we know it. Um, talk a little bit about the going into, you know, you know, like uh, Lion King and, and just what the attitude early on was about uh, the way that music and uh, um, image would go together. I mean, what were the, some of the North Stars? Well, I, I think the at first, it, 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 we went through a, a massive change from thinking of a movie with songs. Uh, and so we would make movies and we would stick a song in once in a while. 
um, to a, a new way of thinking. It was really brought in by Howard Ashman uh, and Alan Menken that came in from Little Shop of Horrors that they had just had this huge hit on Broadway with. They came in and, and the new approach was no songs have to be integrated into the plot and story and character development uh, hand in glove with the writing. They can't just be pasted on. Um, because prior to that, songs were like a bathroom break. You could get up and walk away and you know, probably not miss a lot of the story. But what Howard uh, did was kind of educate us that the songs have to tell story. You can, a song like um, Ursula's song in Little Mermaid, Ariel doesn't even know Ursula exists. And three minutes later, she's signing her voice away uh, to be able to go up on land. In Beauty and the Beast, um, Gaston doesn't really know the beast exists until the, the mob song and Belle pulls out a mirror and says, there's a beast. And everybody goes, there's a beast. And they sing about it for three minutes. And the last note of the song, they're at the front door of his castle. So songs are a shorthand through a lot of plot, but they're also essential to it. And they give a tremendous amount of emotional energy to it. So by the time we got to Lion King, it was a it was odd how that movie came together musically because originally we were listening to a lot of South African bands. We were listening to Lady Smith, Black Mombazo. We oh, were yeah. listening to Paul Simon and um, the Graceland album, which had been out for several years, thinking, oh, that's the direction to go. And then Tim Rice was working with us on the movie, the great um, lyricist of Evita and so many uh, Jesus Christ superstar. Sure. And he said, what about Elton John? And we thought, no. <laughs> you know, <he's> not... <laughs> He doesn't know that world, but what worked out and what Tim was so smart about is Elton has a gift for melodies and for powerful, powerful ballads. And, and the only thing we were missing is that kind of, um, oh, putting it in the vernacular of Africa. And that's where Hans Zimmer came in. And Hans was able to do that with Lebo, um, who was a native South African who came in and helped orchestrate and sing that opening cry in Lion King. Mm -hmm. So that was a mashup of talents that made Lion King work. Uh, but but Tim lyrically was able to put plot in the songs, mm. and um, and then we and then Hans and Elton were able to musicalize those in a way that felt like it grew out of the fabric of Africa, um, and so that was a challenge on that movie, and they ended up being really powerful. And the, you know, songs like Circle of Life, if you listen to the piano demo of that, it's Elton sitting in his pajamas at his piano, playing Circle of Life, and it doesn't sound like it sounds like kind of a bubblegummy song. Um, but when it's orchestrated and, and Hans did what he did to it, it became an anthem, you know, it was like a bigger statement. Um, and that's what music can do. It's hard to have a, uh, an anthem that is spoken dialogue, but, yeah. but with music, it can be that big statement. And even like songs like part of your world, um, part of your world is a monologue of a young teenage girl looking in the mirror saying, wow, I really wish I could be up where the people are. Yeah. And it's just a monologue put to music. And that adds a level of emotion that just the monologue alone without the music wouldn't have. And, um, and those are the kinds of things that started to sink into our heads um, in that era. And uh, thankfully you're still around. And, and a lot of that goes to Howard Ashman. And it's amazing how that work has gone on. You know, you were talking about uh, works being revisited or, or um, you know, just, uh, people having different takes on, on sort of classics. The way that Lion King has returned to us now, um, even not even thinking of the, 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 the uh, film, uh, but also the stage show and, and what that yeah. meant to people. And, and Julie Taymor, who was just with us, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, um, oh, 
you know, what, what, uh, what that came to represent and, and mean to people, uh, like on a global level, it really is sort of fascinating. And, and you know, Disney takes a lot of grief for stuff. Uh, and, you know, uh, but there's, there's two things I, I really do really deeply admire about Disney and respect. And, and, and one is uh, there's the way that they maintain their history uh, or their connection to it. No company in Hollywood, I think, is, is as uh, conversant with its own history and legacy as Disney and, and for very commercial reasons, but also they're just good at it. And, and it, it makes their things seem like they have a timelessness because they care. You know, and so I really respect and, uh, and admire that. And then the other thing I was going to say is just the scale of things and, and the level of talent. I mean, you know, what about Elton John? I mean, okay, the, the fact that, you know, nah, you know, but the fact that, well, you know, what should we call Elton John? Because not everybody could, could or, or would or, or even should, but uh, Disney has a way of bringing together these world-class talents for, you know, these sort of epic properties, you know? Yeah. Well, a lot of these people, at least through the last 20 or 30 years, were attracted to it because it was Disney. And a lot of the talent, even today, that does voices for the Disney films or Pixar films are um, have kids. And they a lot of their work can't be seen by their own children. Uh, so they have to be, um, you know, they're excited but to get a Robin Williams for Aladdin or, you know, whoever is is a step into a, a you know family movie that their whole family can go see and be proud of. And um, like Angela Lansbury did uh, the teapot in Beauty and the Beast, and she's she just had her 95th birthday, and I talked to her before the holidays, and she's oh, wow. she's so proud of that little teapot because her grandchildren and great grandchildren all know it and love it, and she's always Mrs. Potts to them, whereas they may not know her from um, the Manchurian Candidate, you right. know. So right, right. It's, it's really that that association with Disney that brings a lot of people to it, and uh, and you're right, it is it is a cherished history that's kept in the archives. And, um, and now there's kind of a huge fan base. It's a little like the Boston Red Sox or something where there's like, um, you know, Red Sox nation where you have this fan base of people that have nothing to do with Disney, but they just affected them as a child and they grew up with it. And they, it was a special time for them and they want to preserve it. And that's really unique because you don't feel that way about Warner brothers or Paramount. No. Um, but because they were doing children's movies and because of Disneyland, you have this, this kind of very cherished, almost sacred feeling about those experiences and you don't want to lose them. And so you're, you're willing to take, hang on to those for a lot of your life. And it's very, very unique to Disney. I'm really, I'm really waiting Don, for the, uh, the Disney retirement home. I'm waiting for them to come up and, oh. and, and, and just take us from the full range of life, right? From, Cause I know that they have the, the nursery gifts uh, you know, I know they got infants covered and I'm just That's waiting to, to get, you know, when we're going to have characters that are going to be uh, in assisted living facilities. <laughs> well, it, it's almost there. There's a place in Orlando on the Disney World property called the Golden Oak Ranch. And um, it is it is <laughs> homes, homes in the three and four million dollar range. So it's not exactly a, a you know, assisted living facility. Right. But it's meant for couples who are retired or, you know, at the end of their careers who can afford a $4 million house. And they're, they're, the parks have uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in bronze in them. The, the streets are called, uh, you know, Ward Kimball Street and, and uh -huh. uh, Frank Thomas Street. 
and the houses are customized. So there's houses that are all Star Wars inside and they have separate bedroom suites for the kids that are all Mickey Mouse oriented. And, and so it's that thing that you feel like, oh, I can buy this. And the Disney Vacation Club, which is kind of a timeshare club is the same thing. I can buy this and gift it to my family and my children and my children's children can come and, and love it there. And, and Walt Disney World and the Magic Kingdom is right next door. So there, there's that, which is, and, and it's stunning. I mean, if you Google the Golden Oak Ranch in Orlando, it's stunning, um, not you know for the wealthy, basically. So, wow. um, that's yeah. Great. I've got, I, I just hope we don't get to the circle of life hospice. I think that, like, you know, that's... that's I, you know, you know it's coming. I just, <laughs> I'm waiting for the phone to ring. You know, it would be a funny show is the, that community you just described. Uh, uh, if, you know, some of the lower rent uh, or some of the lower uh, cost, you know, like uh, if someone could get into the black hole, you know, like, I mean, the black <laughs> hole house can't be going for too much. And, yeah, and the name yeah. of it is fantastic. You can call it like the black totally. hole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the great sitcom. <laughs> yeah, Cabin Boy, uh, <laughs> all the kind of B-level Disney movies like uh, Gus the Field Goal Kicking Mule, oh. the computer wore tennis shoes, yeah. That's the good stuff. And that brings me back to my all-time favorite, uh, somewhat tragic trivia that Kurt Russell was the last words that Walt said, you know, or uh, that the last thing he uh, uttered as he yeah. wrote down. You know, and I actually asked Kurt Russell about that and he confirmed it. Yeah, I think that is allegedly true, yes. I mean, there's yeah. the only one that would know would be Roy because I think he was probably the only one there. But um, yeah, yeah, that was a real shocker to the studio because he was still a young man. He was 65. Um, so, it, you know, it's not yeah. like he didn't have, he had 20 years worth of plans ahead of him. They already had bought the Florida property to build Epcot. And, um, yeah. you know, see, he had, He's a really interesting guy because he had turned from totally European-based uh, fairy tales for the first 30 years of his life and made Snow White and Pinocchio and all those things. Then after the war, there was a big strike at the studio. He comes back and starts doing that again, like Cinderella, but then totally loses interest in it because television comes along. So then he, he actually sells his house, which was a, this is so symbolic, an English Tudor revival house. Right. Um, he sells it and builds this mid-century modern kind of ranch style house up in Beverly oh. Hills and starts making these kind of cool TV shows and, and become an urban planner. Yeah. So he has this midlife crisis where instead of going out and having an affair, he just changes his whole outlook on life and becomes a modernist. Yeah. And yes, he still does animation, but he's delegated that to somebody else. And he looks in once in a while, but he's building theme parks and becomes interested in urban design and building this Epcot Center. And now he's he's completely immersed in his reading and everything else into that, and that's what you know by the end of his life what he was. So it just points to reinvention. You know, I think that's something I really believe in is we have to reinvent ourselves every couple of years so that we stay relevant. And um, and Walt Disney was the the poster child for that. For sure. No, it, it very well said. And he, uh, he he was so audacious. You know, with the gambles. I mean, you know, the, I mean Snow yeah. White. People don't understand that. What I mean, it was. Uh, tremendous gamble and and uh uh and many people thought would not work and then the, uh when he embraced television while the rest of uh his peers in hollywood uh were approaching it the way the train companies approached cars like well just ignore yep. it they'll go away uh yep. you know the the, the train industry's main reaction they had a big summit after the the car really started uh you know rolling so to speak and their their big uh, uh initiative was to paint the trains and if we just painted the trains a new color really 
yeah, people will they'll remember how much they love trains and they'll and they'll hop on board and no, you know what? Maybe you guys should invest in cars. Maybe you should have bought some factories. Like maybe instead of isn't that interesting? You know, digging in the heels like, like the big uh, big communications company a hundred years ago was Western Union. So we should all be talking on Western Union phones right now. That's but right. They didn't adapt, you know, and so that's the the lesson of you know, regardless of what you who you are and what your company does, you have to make those big leaps. And and yeah. Disney by and large has absolutely embraced technology multiple times, and then uh, you know, and then launching the park, uh, a, a gamble as big as any he would ever take in his life. And it, it is interesting the things that do endure. Um, you know, AT and T that second T is still for Telegraph, I think. You know, like you know, so oh, interesting, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they they, they don't mention yeah. that much. <laughs> <laughs> no, and the and the parks were all about ABC because he went to CBS and NBC and said, "I, you know, I'd be happy to give you your program, but I want um, eleven million dollars for my amusement park." And they were like, "Well, we'll take your programs, but we don't have any interest in an amusement park." And ABC was so desperate for his programming, they said, "Okay, it, this is insane, but okay, we'll give you the money." And he put some of his money in and got some from Western Publishing and that, and they built this nutty park in you know the middle of an orange grove. And um, that was really an insane thing. I mean, they built it in like 11 or 12 months um, and, and it's still there. You know, that, that's a really remarkable story. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it really, really is. And uh, it, it, it would have been interesting to see what Walt would have done with another decade. You know, I, I wonder how different yeah. things would have been, you know. But, well, you know, what's interesting to me and people don't know this story is Walt virtually left his own company to build Disneyland. He had a board of directors. It was a publicly held company, but he felt like he couldn't get the traction he needed to do what he wanted to do. So he he didn't resign, but he went down the street three miles and opened WED, which was short for Walter Elias Disney. And WED was fully owned. Uh, he, he opened also a company called Disneyland Incorporated, fully owned by Walt and his family. And uh, that was his sandbox. And he pulled a yeah. couple of his favorite people where they started doing drawings and playing and Disneyland was their goal. And, um, and then after a few years, he sold it back to Walt Disney Productions, uh, which there were shareholder suits and all kinds of terrible things that happened, but nobody tells that oh, wow. story. That Walt that. had to leave his own company to do what he wanted to do. And that's, I think that says it all about what a risk taker he was. Yeah, it's like Sinatra going, doing reprise. Like it's like almost like a, yeah. a second, let me try this, you know, smaller, but bigger in a, in a different way. It, it, totally, totally exactly the same thing. It'd be like Elon Musk saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this thing over here, but I'm going to leave all my other companies behind, uh, which maybe is what Jeff Bezos is doing, you know, just saying, I'm going to leave right. my CEO spot and go off and do whatever I want to do. But, uh, you know, with Walt, it was in the 1950s and in such a leap to say, yeah, I'll still do the movies and things. But I want this so bad that I'm going to start up my own company that there are no shareholders, there is no board of directors, and it's my own money and nobody can tell me what to do. Yeah. That's pretty ballsy. Yeah. It, no, it's, it, it, it certainly is. Uh, it's pretty audacious. Um, you know, with all the people that you met through the years uh, and, and all the people you've collaborated with, you know, because it's the most collaborative art, right? Film and, and animation. It really is. It really is. Uh, I mean, yeah. And, um, I wonder if you've come across people, uh, there's, there's these people that, you know, I think, are, I don't know how to describe it, like the spooky talents, almost like just the, like, uh, do, you, do you follow sports at all? Uh-huh. Okay, like Barry yeah. Sanders in football. Uh -huh. That's, uh -huh. he just, he's just different, 
you know, uh, yeah. the rhythm and, and the way he approaches things and the way that he does things. Have you come across someone that would be like a mercurial talent like that or someone that you would point to or, or someone who just had a, a kind of a, their antenna seemed to be attuned to, to different wavelengths? Uh, Tim Burton. Hmm. You know, Tim's, what's odd about Tim is he grew up in Burbank, you know, yeah. right around the studio, went to CalArts like everybody else, but he was cut out of a different cloth. And um, he, he, his art teacher, when he was growing up, just said, you know, you don't have to draw like everybody else, draw like yourself. And so he had some liberating experiences from his teachers along the way. And he didn't really fit in at Disney. He, you know, he worked on movies like Fox and the Hound with us and uh, really hard worker, but he always had his own kind of um, uh, images in his head and was on a, I'll use the word spectrum, not in a punitive way, but was on a, in a place that was quite different than everybody else. Not, not oriented towards a career or anything else, but oriented towards just his own ideas. So from a really early time, he was uh, so unique. And I think he was smart that he went out and started doing Pee Wee's Big Adventure and Batman and some things that I know were really hard for him. Um, but if you look at his career and the look of his movies and the kind of uh, characterization that he puts into his movies, he really is... Um, different than the rest of us and, and yeah. one of the one of the most sweet um unassuming guys i mean it's all when he's with executives it's funny because he almost puts on a, a character he has this avatar he, he plays of the messy hair and the director and all that stuff but yeah. when he works he is all about the work and and focus and and getting the best results and hard working long hours and all the things that we know have to go into it yeah so he's not this auteur that just barks out ideas. He really does the homework. Uh, so he's a really unique talent. Um, Richard Williams was the same way that directed the animation on Roger Rabbit. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, you, there are people like that. Uh, Hans Zimmer, I think is amazing. Yeah. Um, that are, have a little talent, but they also have, you know what they have is they have a vision for an entire life. And the mm. old guys at Disney did this too. They weren't just animation fans. They traveled, they collected masks from New Guinea. They, you know, they were fly fishermen. They built trains in their backyards. They had these big lives. Yeah. And those lives then came back to their artistry. But it wasn't, it, sometimes I see um, a generation of animators come along. They're just animation geeks. And that's cool too. But they're yeah. just so about the work that they forget that there's a big world out there. And um, the guys and girls from the early Disney days really uh, immersed themselves in language and acting and dance and sculpture and painting and all those things yeah. and all that fed back into their artistry and that was a big lesson that i took away that uh, your life if animation is supposed to imitate life you have to have a life first before you can <laughs> imitate it you know so sometimes we forget that and i think that's a big lesson i've learned over the years is you have to go out and have a big life yeah no that's interesting and it's uh it's one thing to live for your art but it's another thing to make uh to learn the art of living yeah. yeah, yeah, well said. That's exactly it, and those guys did. And really the best, most interesting people I know um, have done that. So for all of us, uh, no matter where we are in life, there's there's a new challenge and there's a new opportunity. And so for you today, uh, with all the things that, all your pursuits uh, that you have, if you think about your creative life, do you, can you recognize a, a, a particular challenge that you have right now and then maybe point to an opportunity that has you excited? 
Yeah, I've over the last 10 years or so, I've made, um, I've gotten big time into documentaries. I made several Disney nature movies about chimpanzees and things like that, which was fascinating. Um, And then I I just finished a movie about Howard Ashman last year that's on Disney Plus right now. And documentaries are a fit for me right now because instead of dealing with animation, which is 600 people in four years and that kind of thing, documentaries are six people, you know, over a year. And so they're manageable and they're, uh, you can control them a lot more. And they're also an opportunity to tell untold stories. So it's a chance to find someone or some some cause or some story to tell that has never been told and probably never would, except that you did the research and you went in and dug into it. Um, so those are the kinds of things that really interest me. And I, I, I've been looking at a lot of stories about women, about, um, you know, whether they're architects or painters, or I was reading a story about um, Van Gogh. It's in the New York Times this last Sunday. And uh, we know Vincent Van Gogh, we know Theo Van Gogh, but, you know, Vincent and Theo died within a few years of each other, and they were in their 30s. But it was Theo's wife, Jo, who, who lived into her 50s and 60s, that was amazing about promoting Van Gogh's work and showing it in galleries and bringing it to New York and translating Theo's letters into English and doing all this stuff that made Van Gogh a household name. And nobody knows her. And it was a fascinating story um, in the New York Times because it just showed that because of cultural differences or whatever, we we disregard women so many times and they're kind of the last of the uh, put upon um, people, so to speak, still. And uh, to be able to unearth a story like that is is thrilling to me. So I've I I just am fascinated with that. I, I I think I grew up around women. I was you know duh, but I, I was more the kind of guy that wouldn't necessarily sit in the living room and watch football after dinner while the women cleaned up. I would be in the kitchen hanging out with the women because their stories were better, yeah. um, and and loved them you know because of that. And so for some reason, I'm really, um, and I have a daughter and, you know, I'm just really um, aware of uh, women's stories and how little they've been told. Yeah, um, yeah. Julia Morgan's a story I've been researching a lot. She was the first female architect to go to the um, Academy of Beaux-Arts in Paris, where you would go to study if you were anybody and, uh, and graduated from there. So you see these class pictures from this Paris kind of art and architecture school. And there's this one little girl sitting in the middle and it's Julia Morgan from California. Wow. And she went on to, to design and build Hearst Castle and, and so many things in California. Oh, wow. So wow. there's these amazing stories like that that just light me up. And, um, and, and I, I, luckily people like PBS and um, you know, the streaming world that we're in right now gives a market for stories like that. Yeah. But that's what excites me. I love doing research. I love staying up till four in the morning and um, and digging into rabbit holes that have never been dug into. Uh, it's an addiction, to be honest. And sure. uh, that's what really I love these days. Yeah, that's that's uh, doing uh, that's the angels' work right there too, because you know you're you're shining a spotlight on on the worthy, and, and that's one of the great things that that can be done. I I, I agree with you. I I feel like I uh, growing up also had like a real affinity for the 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 almost the female verbal tradition i mean women talk more than men they use more words yeah. than men uh they have friends uh in a way that most men don't you know um men are taught to to succeed on their own potentially women uh you know they they finish each other's sentences you know men want to be heard yeah. women want to listen uh, men yeah. women want to be heard too but in a different way um i was raised by a 
I was raised in a senior citizens community. Uh, I actually wasn't allowed to play outside. It was in South Florida. Uh, mm. And my, I had three siblings. They were with my, my parents, but I grew up with a, my grandfather's sister. I was born a little later. Um, I was called a mistake later. The marketing team suggested <laughs> surprise. So we yeah, went with that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, I was raised by this, uh, this wonderful woman who uh, had, uh, had been able to have children of her own due to unnecessary hysterectomy during the war. Uh, she'd been injured mm. while repairing a plane. She had fell from a bomber uh, onto the tarmac. Um, and she was 19 years old. And she had this amazing maternal instincts and all that came, was showered on me. And so I had so much attention from her and all the neighbors I got to know. And so, you know, I was like this little pudgy kid walking around South Florida with a Spider-Man comic book in my back pocket. But I realized these people give you food and air conditioning uh, if you <laughs> were polite and listened to their stories. And, and so I got really, really good at it. And I realized I became a journalist by listening to Mr. Capasto tell his stories about Anzio. And uh, Mrs. Uh, uh, Clooney down the street who always called me Jake, even though my name isn't Jake. And I started to like it. And, you know, all these <laughs> all these characters. And, you know, the ambulance would come every few day, weeks, you know, and... and it was called Sunswept. It was like uh, the Grim Reaper with a broom, I always imagined. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, I learned so much from those people, you know, and I became yeah, a story yeah. storyteller because of them. Um, at school, I had opinions about Mussolini and the Andrews sisters, and everybody else was talking about, like, you know, uh, Transformers. And I was like, wow, yeah. how, about, how about that Andy Hardy? You know, everybody's <laughs> like, who are you? <laughs> uh, you're on? very lucky. Very yeah. lucky. That's your life is a movie. That's a great, great story. Oh, thanks. It's, uh, I'm not sure if, uh, well, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but probably not a rated R animated one, though. Probably not, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably best. It's probably best. Yeah. But I think it, women have such great social skills that, as you, you said beautifully, is that men don't. Men are um, about me, and they tend to be loners, and they have skills for building building alliances uh with strangers basically you know going out and saying well here's some corporations and some vendors and things like that and i'll build an alliance with them and together we'll build a freeway or whatever it is that's right um the intimacy of uh communication between women and their social skills in small groups is stunning and that's something that without knowing it i was really attracted to yeah yeah and it's 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 it, i think it haunts a lot of men that when they retire they can't fill the void of work because their their relationships are purely driven by work and they haven't really nurtured or maintained friendships. I know it's been a challenge for me just in career changing, um, you know, that I didn't, I, I look around, I realized, you know, everybody I know, I have so many friends, but they were all colleagues and they were people I interacted yeah. with. And, and then once that's gone, it's really hard to, to initiate it. I mean, you get lucky here and there maybe, but uh, and it leads to a lot of tragically lonely men. Yeah, boy, that's well said. It's well said, and, and I don't know what the solution is. And and it's funny, we think of patriarchy and men being more powerful, and, and maybe in some quarters they are, but it's really the women who are the creators and the the storytellers in many ways. And, yeah, um, and the glue. That's a, yeah, man, yeah. that's a huge thing. Yeah, well, that's a, an interesting thing. And well, it's a... a it's such a treat to talk to you. I could do this all day. Uh, oh, same here, same here. Yeah, I want to thank you for joining us and uh, I hope that maybe we can have you back sometime. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Um, and I, you know, I appreciate what you do as well and just kind of 
sharing people like Julie Taymor with the uh, with the world. It, that one thing you find out is that Disney really is just people who put their pants on one leg at a time and are scared to death and, and you know humbled and trying to do good work. It's not a big corporation necessarily. Um, and if you can tap into that once in a while, it just shows you that it's accessible and it's human and uh, uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's absolutely true. There's some of the nicest people I know uh, I've met through Disney, you know, like Howard Green and uh, there's, there's so many people, uh, yeah. just like national He's, treasures to me. Uh, really but I don't know, if, I, I, that Donald guy, he doesn't put his pants on one leg at a time, so I don't know. He has, you know, it's the, the big secret about cartoon characters is Donald, Winnie the Pooh, but they have no pants, many have no clothes. But nobody talks about it, and uh, maybe it's better that way. <laughs> we got to keep that rating, keep that PG rating. Yeah. <laughs> well, Don Hunt, thank you for so much for joining us, and uh, we look forward to all your projects. and And uh, thanks for shining the spotlight with those documentaries too. I, uh, I think it's it's uh, it's the angels' work, as I said. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate it. All right. Cheers. Take care. Well, thank you so much. That was Disney producer Don Hahn on Jeff Boucher's Mindspace. And we had a great time talking to him about the industry. Yeah, you know, it's uh, a lot of fun to talk about animation. Uh, we haven't done a ton of it, really, uh, on Mindspace. Um, and uh, I'm a big fan of classic Disney uh, animation, like uh, especially like uh, Pinocchio and, and Snow White. Um, but I have a really, uh, a, a big soft spot for Beauty and the Beast. You know, that was like my favorite. Mm -hmm. When that came out, I just, I just marveled at it. I, we talked a little bit about it with Don, but just the, the ambition of it and the way that uh, uh, it was realized on the screen, I just thought it was so smart and sophisticated. And um, as a uncle to nieces and a father to a daughter, uh, it's, it's, it's the Disney movie that uh, is the closest to what you kind of want your daughter to to find in life, you know, like, I mean, she's uh, independent and thoughtful. Uh, her dad's kind of a pain in the ass, you know, so I can relate to that as well. So, you know, uh, but I, I just find that movie very, very charming. And uh, so it was a real treat to talk to him about it. Yeah, um, I've never seen the new one. Have you seen the the live action one? Is her Is her dad uh, different in that one? You know, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I've mixed bag of reactions to the, the Disney revisitations, I'll call them. Um, you know, I think some of them I, I don't like very much and some of them I thought were good, but uh, uh, I didn't see that one. Yeah, I mean, I think Han mentioned that there's a bit of a disconnect between adult tastes of the the people who saw it as as children and now they want the live action i think because disney is trying to bring in that nostalgic adult audience and he talked about how it is though starting to shift from a, a kind of adult insecurity about being seen watching animation to a more openness of adults to explore that as a quote unquote legitimate um, or lofty art form versus something that's quote unquote for kids. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's an interesting thing, uh, you know, in, in animation history, you know, early on, uh, you know, uh, cartoons were shown before 
uh, feature films and and uh, so a lot of times they would be aimed at a very general audience. Uh, you know, you, you look back on the humor of Bugs Bunny or or the early uh, some of the really dark animation, uh, you know, like the St. James Infirmary one, um, you know, with the early Betty Boop uh, with the Fleischers. Um, and uh, clearly that stuff's not made for little kids. And then um, Disney helped change animation and refocus it toward children. Although Walt Disney would have always said that he made family films, not, not children's films. Uh, mm-hmm. It was important to him. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, and, and that, that target audience because they buy cereal or not because they eat breakfast cereal uh, because of toys and stuff. Uh, you, you know, you had Saturday mornings carved out for animation for a long time. And, and I think it's the power of that, the Saturday morning animation that is in people's minds. And I think it, 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 it relegated animation to, uh, you know, juvenilia uh, for a mm-hmm. long, long time. Uh, Pixar is really, to me, is the, is the, the people that changed the, you know, flip the script as to use the overused expression. And, uh, you know, if you look at their movies, they really don't make them for kids. I mean, you know, I, I mean, they are open to children and they appeal to children, but, you know, movies like Up and, you know, Wally and, um, you know, Ratatouille, if you just look at the, the way that they're built and the stories they tell and the characters they present, the, you know, it, it's definitely got a lot there for uh, every age, I think. I, you know, I defy someone to watch the montage scene at the beginning of Up, um, mm. you know, any age person to watch that. And that's the I try not to weep challenge well i defy them to tell me that that is not uh entertainment that uh is uh viable for every every audience because it, it really mm-hmm. does uh i think it actually affects adults more than kids i think kids will see it and, and probably uh, be affected by it but in a different way uh with not the same resonance as someone who uh you know might be able to relate to some of the stuff that's going on in there and i've always liked the way that you know, animation and, and comics were approached in Japan, uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, with manga, that at one point you would have comics that were color-coded for different ages and just assumed that people would all, you know, be reading comics. Uh, and we have, we had somewhat of that tradition in the States for a while, but uh, I think that uh, uh, the audience needs and, and wants and just uh, demographics really pushed it toward kid stuff for a long time in both cases but you know disney disney's revisitations of these movies uh, you know like lion king and jungle book and uh, being the sort of photorealistic animation even though we don't call it animation they call it live action but they're they really are animation mm-hmm. uh, or the beauty of the beast or dumbo where you have uh well-known uh directors uh doing true live action remakes of of original ones. I don't know how much that's driven by, I don't know if that's a pull or a push. I mean, to be, you know, I think Don said, you know, it's it's what the audience wants, but I think it's really, it's, it's what Disney wants. I mean, I just think that the repackaging of, of their material uh, is what they do best, you know, like revisiting stuff and they'll find, you know, multiple ways to come back and, and uh, re-engage their their legacy which i think is a great thing i mean they live their history and exploit their history exploit not a criticism just a literal word but mm-hmm. they exploit their history better than 
anybody else in Hollywood, I think. Uh, but some of it gets a little, I think, uh, a little commercial at some point. Um, you, I, you know, if, if you just look at Disney, also just the way that they they built their empire since the '90s, uh, you know, they, it's expansion through acquisition. Instead of trying to create really bold new IP, and, and there have been instances, you know, Princess and the Frog, for instance, or or Coco, uh, but Disney Disney's major way of expanding their library and their reach has been through buying things. They bought Winnie the Pooh. They bought the Muppets. Then they bought Marvel. They bought Lucasfilm. You know, uh, just it's creating this uh, footprint, and that footprint's not just at the theaters uh, and on television, but it's at the toy stores and at the retail. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they you can almost look like they check off the boxes of, okay, we got our boys covered. Let's see. We took out Hot Wheels with cars. We okay. We own Star Wars now. We own all the Marvel characters. You know, like the whole toy aisle. You know, just going down the aisle is uh, a lot of their real estate at this point. Yeah, uh, I know. Maybe not as extensively as, or as noticeably as it is for kids. Because um, I know that, like, when you go down the kid aisle, it's like it's a huge section of the store. But I know. Heavy Metal has been trying to branch out, not necessarily through acquisition, but through certainly through collaboration and merchandising and having lots of different fingers in our different, uh, not our different pies, but in different pies and kind of, or you could make the analogy of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks, but we are trying to explore broadening it, which, which is a complex thing, I think, for the company. I think everybody here has a different opinion on it. You know, some people are really into things like forays into young adult fiction or NFTs <laughs> or okay. um, collaborations with bands or celebrities. I think everybody has a different take here. Um, and, and I think it's in a really interesting place where one has to contend with you know, regardless of how the brand has been historically, how fans remember it has been really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Going, yeah, I mean, people, I mean, probably because it's in the title of the magazine, the adult illustrated sci-fi fantasy magazine, people refer to the movie, I think, overwhelmingly as like an adult animation. Right. Um, probably because it's got boobies. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's but right. it's interesting because if you rewatch it, it's I I actually I, I feel like it feels adolescent. It feels not quite kid stuff, but it feels definitely like it's aiming for that sweet spot of 12, 13 year olds who are just kind of uncovering this stuff. And I think um it even explicitly acknowledges it in in the in the den sequence where he's like this midwestern kid who's suddenly transported into this fantasy world and he's yeah. like i'm just a kid from whatever and now you know this queen wants to have sex with me yeah. what i think that's a very on the nose kind of reference to what the magazine was for that kind of that group of i mean they're children that's right that's right <laughs> it's, it's, yeah it was this it was the view of adulthood yeah, yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's sophomoric, you know, uh, mm -hmm. or 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 uh, it's not puerile, but it's it's sophomoric. Um, yeah, and for a long time, we well, you know with Dan, especially that. Uh, well, they there was there was stuff that was uh, that was woven into the satire 
of some stuff like you know uh, that it it had that sort of detached irony where it was acknowledging mm -hmm. all the stuff that you're talking about uh, I think the movie was probably jolting more jolting than the magazine because the magazine at that time if you looked around there was a lot of adult and what I mean by adult is like mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, sexual uh, or violent um, content um, either graphic or, or you know semi-graphic and uh, there was a lot more of that on the newsstand comics than there was at the movie theaters. Like, so at the movie theaters, you had like Fritz the Cat and Heavy Metal, and then everything else was Disney. So it was really jolting uh, in a way. People hadn't really seen stuff like uh, Heavy Metal, the movie. Uh, the magazine, though, was competing with uh, like, you know, eight or nine other yeah. publications that would be doing the, kind of the same thing maybe a horror version of it, maybe a black and white version of it, uh, maybe not as, uh, you know, colorful. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting what heavy metal represents. I mean, it's like, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, if you, it, it has as much to do with adult and mature storytelling. Some of it was adult and mature uh, in the sense of its, its, its level of accomplishment or its ambition. But a lot of it was just kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of appealing to the the, the base and driving instincts of its uh its sophomoric audience but uh, but again I, I i should specify for people listening that we don't mean any of this in a disparaging way no. that it's no. it's a legitimate psychological phase that people go through and i think it's important to have good art that's that's aimed at adolescence and resonates with their their psyches whether, like you said, you said Beauty and the Beast. I mean, I'm not sure if, if it's at if it's the girls it addresses are adolescents or maybe you know younger. I mean, that was important for you, yeah, um, to have something that you like to be able to show to young girls that would resonate with them. Just as I think, you know, despite its flaws, Heavy Metal the movie um, was very important for teenage boys, and I think that they yeah. need to have those needs met and reflected in cinema. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it's also is it's uh, it, it had its its tongue firmly in its cheek uh, for a lot of it, and mm -hmm. uh, and it's just like going to a, an arena rock concert, you know, where it's everything is, uh, you know, over the top, and and uh, yeah, it's it, it appeals to the aesthetic, and and uh, yeah, there there was a lot of a thrill to getting a copy of Heavy Metal, you know, in the eighties, uh, you know, I remember reading it, and it's. Uh, it was different than the other ones on the newsstand in that it did have this kind of edgy European, uh, uh, some stuff was really ambiguous. Some of it was kind of trippy. Some of it was, uh, you know, complex in, in ways that were unexpected. And I think that that's what made it like the foreign film of, of mm -hmm. uh, comics at that time, you know, uh, it, it really felt different. And the talents of the people, you know, like what Mobius was doing and what Bernie Wrightson and just so many, you know, Corbin, Richard Corbin and so many, you know, titans of, uh, of art. I mean, those guys were just doing tremendous stuff. Uh, you know, the publication's been around for 300 some odd issues. Uh, so you're going to get like a really wide range of, you know, in that zone of what it is. But it is just like animation. It's it appeals to young people uh and it is it, at its best it appeals to all people 
or uh, not all people, but probably a good wide range. Um, but uh, you're right, when, when you speak to its, its place in people's hearts uh, or in their comic book collections, uh, it, it, it's kind of a Rorschach test. It's, it's what mm -hmm. they think of it is not the same as what it is. You know, a lot of times what it represents is maybe something more or something different than, than what it actually is. But mm -hmm. uh, I sure like talking to Don Hahn though. He was a really nice guy. And, um, it was fascinating. We didn't really touch too much on his more recent stuff, uh, I realized, but maybe we can have him back for that sometime. Uh, it, it, it's just fascinating to see the history of Disney, though, and how it fits in and, and you know, when the ebb and flow of it and, and what it means to mm -hmm. people. And, and going forward, it, it's really interesting. Is you know, I, I'm really interested to see where animation goes next, uh, especially like looking at some of the stuff on Netflix. Uh, and the other streaming services that there's been, you know, an uptick in like what you would call mature animation and mm -hmm. both by ambition and also by, you know, what it portrays and stuff like that. I, I don't know if you've seen any of this, the stuff that they've had lately, but it's actually pretty cool. Some of the, you know, some of the projects we could, uh, uh, we should probably try to get some of the people that are doing that on sometime. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, and I'd love to talk more about Han's work with like Howard Ashman, because I think something that we get into a mindset here at Heavy Metal is that like pushing boundaries or making big changes or innovations needs to correlate with offending people or or um, or yeah. the the adult sphere doing things with regards to sex and violence and presenting new images in those arenas. But Howard Ashman was an innovator. In the in the family sphere i mean what he brought to the disney formula so you know just yeah. know your audience you know you could be an adolescent exploring heavy metal for the first time or you could be a family person or you could be a housewife or you know a senior or anybody out there um and it doesn't really matter what arena you're in you can still innovate and push boundaries and that's what we're about here at mindspace yeah absolutely uh yeah, there's, there's all kinds of ways to innovate and, and push that envelope forward. Yeah, I think that there's kind of a, a, a romanticizing of the, the, the rabble rouser and the mm -hmm. you know, throwing, up, throwing up the horns and being bad, badass. Uh, I think, you know, that's baked into heavy metals DNA at this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes the, mm -hmm. the uh, you know, you know, I mean, you look at like a Christopher Nolan or something, somebody like that, who's who is you know his great innovation is you know kind of just the, the ambition of his vision uh and the sophistication of his his storytelling um and the architecture of his films but you know there's not really he's not really you know everything that's in um you know for instance like dark knight you know he he says uh it it's not, it's basically, it's like the French connection. Like, you know, it's, it, he basically wanted to make the French connection in, in Gotham uh, with, with these characters and stuff like that. I mean, he's not, he wasn't really, you know, creating new types of films. It's just, he was doing it at a very high level and, and uh, continues to do so. So it's, you know, as you say, it, it, the, the rebel, uh, the rebel yell is, uh, it's great for the energy it provides, but there's all kinds of, uh, revolutions and, and rebellions and sometimes they're just against uh, mediocrity you know yeah you can rebel against 
you can rebel politically or in terms of what what you're cooking for dinner tonight. Right. Um, right. You can you can parent your kids in innovative ways that, you know, encourage them to be creative. So that's that's what we're about. We're not excluding anyone from the the sphere of, of innovator. That's right. Fun fact about the throwing the horns that that kind of brings back to that theme of of um, adult versus, you know, the family and the wholesome. I think I think Dio says that he got that from his old Italian grandmother who would do that. You know, it's it's a gesture toward our superstition. So it has the most wholesome, wholesome, loving origin. That's great. That's great. (laughs) My mother just trying to parent and protect her her family so sure and then uh nimoy's uh hand yeah uh sort of the split finger vulcan salute you know he he learned that in uh synagogue in boston mm-hmm. as a little kid you know so yeah it's it's uh it's funny the heritage of things uh so i guess everything goes back to family and tradition and, and history mm-hmm. though you know? yeah so, so. Thanks so much for joining us. Show your kids both Beauty and the Beast and Heavy Metal um, when, when it's age appropriate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, don't pull any punches. Or That's or do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pull your punches. Oh, Innovate nonviolently time. however you want. So what, What's that classic line, the Marlon Brando line? What are you rebelling against? He says, what do you got? I always <laughs> like that. that line. So... All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been the chatty part of Jeff Boucher's Mindspace. You've listened to insights from Jeff Boucher and check us out for our next episode. Love you so much. Bye. Thanks, Maria.